Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest needs no introduction, really. Katie Masuris is founder and CEO of Luther Security. And Katie, I brought you aboard here to talk a little bit about your news around this workforce platform that you have and, you, you know, your plans and ambitions, dear. But let's take a step back. Can you just give the audience a, a quick overview on what Luther Security is and more specifically what this workforce platform is? Sure. Well, Luta Security, I can't believe I founded this company almost eight years ago. I, can you believe it's been that long? Eight years um, already. Almost eight years. Yeah, it'll be eight years in uh, April that I officially founded this company. So um, what Luta Security does is we are the worldwide experts on creating sustainable vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty programs. So that means, you know, if you want a bug bounty program or a vuln disclosure program where your internal processes are solid, that is where we shine. And we've helped um, set up, we set up Pack the Pentagon, we set up the UK government's vuln disclosure program. We helped Zoom when they got really popular and, um, you know, reduce their uh, active caseload by 40% in 10 weeks. So that's really where we specialize um, and we can help um, steer these programs to, you know, measurable security outcomes that are, that are better than just saying how much money you spent. You're um, complimentary so, to the bug bounty platforms, right? Yeah. And honestly, you know, you don't need a platform to do a bug bounty. Um, that is convenient. It is a ticketing mm-hmm. system and it's organized that way. But you can always do the old fashioned way, which is do it over email. Um, that works too. Really where we shine is where we do uh, staff augmentation internal to the company. So what happens when the bug is validated? What do you do? How do you fix it? How do you spot patterns in the bugs that are being reported to you? And how do you dig your way out of making the same mistakes over and over again? So we really connect the dots between uh, bug bounty programs and software development, secure uh, software development lifecycle, and also incident response. Um, you know, and we have a hand in that as well with some of our clients. So, so it's been great these last eight years, but we did notice last year there were a lot of tech layoffs and we had had this idea for a workforce platform for a long time. So um, what a workforce platform is, is exactly as it sounds. It's a marketplace for people who have services to sell and people who need to hire uh, people to do those services. So it is a buyer and seller marketplace. Um, And specifically ours is for IT and cybersecurity jobs. And what we noticed last year was, I think it was 130,000 tech layoffs happened. So that's all across the entire tech sector. But you know, these cybersecurity roles keep popping up and they always require, you know, minimum of five to 10 years experience in cybersecurity. And there's a problem with, you know, getting people into the industry. And there's also a problem when whole security teams get cut, which is what we saw happen last year. Um, Even our industry is not immune to, you know, essentially to companies deciding they want to show more profits, so they cut a bunch of people. I got, I got a million questions because like as you were talking and describing the thing, you know, a lot of things fly, uh, popped into my head. The, the latter part of what Luther does when you talked about like connecting it back to your entire SDL process and getting, you know, variant analysis and getting things shifted left and so on. How much of that is entirely a people business and how much of that you think can be automated? I'm trying to figure out if there's true real use case for things like AI around what you're doing there to automate it? Or are you always 
in this, I don't want to call it a cycle, but where it, it's a people business and you're constantly having to feed people at the problem. It's honestly, it's an expertise business. And, you know, maybe AI will be able to be trained in this um, in the future. But right now, you know, I think some of the greatest uses of AI is to spit out something for you to then go correct, right? So you still have to have an expert to go correct it, but it at least gets you started. I think, you know, it's an expert's business in terms of what we do, because we see organizations at different stages of maturity. And that's part of, you know, what we do is we come in, we assess the maturity. And an org might have started out really strong, really strong security practitioners. They won over the budget that they need. They have the headcount that they need. And their program starts out strong, but it decays over time. People leave their jobs. The, you know, when developers leave their code bases and move on to other organizations, you have a lot of orphaned code internally. So there's a lot of what we do to sort of stitch people back up, stitch organizations back up from the inside because they've experienced this attrition and decay and sort of natural um, natural inefficiencies that arise as their code bases get larger and more complex, as they acquire other companies that didn't go through their secure development lifecycle processes. So, I mean, there's just a ton there. And like I said, it's it's based on our experience of what works and what doesn't and how to, you know, bridge those gaps and teach the organizations that we work for, you know, well, this is the best practice here and here's how you make it sustainable. Is there an established threshold for a company security maturity? Like- like, is there like a bar, like a certain minimum bar that's kind of established that I know I'm buying from XYZ? They've met this certain threshold for maturity. Is something like that exist in the industry? And is there some way to validate that? Well, I think there is way, there are ways to validate maturity at a point in time. Externally point, from external? Externally, sure. You know, if you can, you know, if you can get so we do a process called vulnerability coordination maturity model assessment. I should never name things. That's that's what no, go ahead. Explain that. <laughs> but we do something and we basically um, we do a mix of asking our customers for data and also doing interviews so that we understand the processes involved. But those are really things that we recommend doing quarterly because one, you can become more mature. But two, you could become less mature over time. So just because someone scores is fairly mature um, in their processes at one point in time doesn't mean they'll always stay that way. I mean, we've seen this evolution and de-evolution with Microsoft, right? They go through phases. They go cycles, through yeah. you know, cycles, right? And I think no organization is immune from that. So it has to be continuous. I think it does have to be continuous or at the at a minimum annually just to see how did we do? Did we actually take action on any of the recommendations? And then how did that affect our security bottom line? Uh, let's talk a little bit about the workforce market, because I, I at the same time that you're, uh, you have a, a workforce platform that, that fills a a desperate need for security talent. I go on LinkedIn and everyone's got a circle around their name looking for work. So it seems to be some sort of imbalance with the, with the, with the optics of it. Help me understand where we are. We just went through this state of layoffs, this recalibration, layoffs hit big companies, small companies, everyone. Everyone on LinkedIn appears to be looking for work, but there's still massive need for security talent. How do you 
explain that? Well, I think the security jobs still need to be performed by somebody. And whether or not an organization has retained full-time headcount and budget for full-timers, those things seem to be disconnected right now. So it's like, you know, I literally have seen whole security teams laid off, or let's say, you know, an incident response, a red team is laid off as, you know, looked at as extraneous, and they're going to focus on blue team only and shoring up their defenses. Well, guess what? They still need red team activities performed. They just might not have the headcount for full time. So that's where a lot of it. A lot of it is driven by regulation. A lot of it nowadays driven by uh, cyber insurance contracts. So a lot of that has to be done anyway. Right. And, you know, they're, they're kind of moving towards uh, instead of having in-house teams, they're outsourcing. And what I want to do with this workforce platform is not just limit that outsourcing to cybersecurity companies, which will perform those services, but also to talented individuals who've been cut loose. I mean, there are so many people out there in the wind right now. And the other bit, and we haven't even talked about this part yet, is it's the first workforce platform with dividend sharing, with profit sharing. And I think that's one key innovation in this area that, you know, nobody has tried it before because one, you have to be profitable in order to do profit sharing. So I think that's probably been in the way of a lot of organizations offering this. But two, I think it's, you know, it's an evolution in more fair capitalism. Uh, explain that. Well, I think, you know, capitalism traditionally is get as much out of your workers as possible, paying them as little as possible and concentrate all this wealth at the top. But to me, you know, I've always been very pro-worker and, you know, workers' rights. We have a four-day, 32-hour work week for our full-timers here. Every Friday is paid uh, time off. And in fact, with all the holidays, plus, you know, four weeks of vacation that's paid, we have 79 paid days off at a minimum for full-timers at Lucha Security. So when I look at how I want to be treated as a worker and how I would like the gig economy and the contract economy to evolve. I want to make a workforce platform that does the opposite of worker exploitation. I want to share the wealth with the workers that are making the platform great. So to me, this made total sense and it's it's aligned with the values we've always had. I love the explanation in the blog post with the parable of the long spoons. Uh, you want to explain the, the idea there where we're kind of feeding each other. And can you dig a little bit into like bonus payouts, like what are people actually like what's the profit sharing actually look like and by the numbers? Absolutely. So the parable of the long spoons has spoken to me for a really long time. And, you know, it's it's shared across multiple cultures. Basically, you've got a round pit and in the middle of the pit, there's a platform with food on it. And everybody's seated around the pit with long spoons. They can reach the food, but those long spoons can't reach back to their mouths, their own mouths very easily. So the only way that people are surviving and thriving in this scenario is if they feed each other, you know. So this idea that... It's beautiful. We, it is, you know. And some some versions of this have, have painted the picture of it's the difference between heaven and hell, you know. It's like <laughs> you've got the same reason resources available, but it's what you decide to do with yeah, each how other. Much of that, how much of that don't we see in other parts of society where there's just an excess, uh, you know, this wealth disparity, this excess is a massive excess over here and then rank poverty right next to it. And you just, you just wonder how we live in this civilized world where that exists. But, well, uh, yeah, you're describing enough. San Francisco, you know, and uh, I used to live in San Francisco during the first dot-com boom and it was bad then, but it's gotten so much worse and there's so much more wealth, you know, Concentrated. So, yeah, I mean, look, you know, you know, I'm half native Pacific Islander. That's why I named the company Luta after the island where my mom was born, um, the nickname of the island. And to me, this is a very 
Islander way of looking at it. It's like we thrive together. You know, we can, you know, we can be selfish and try and get as much for ourselves as possible. But actually, all of us benefit when we, you know, we have this shared mission. So back to the actual, you wanted to know about the actual. uh, Yeah, does everyone qualify? Like, I mean, if I jump in there and I start to get work and we, you know, you, you, you set up some work for me and I'm doing there, do I automatically qualify? How does it work? Yeah, basically, um, everybody who gets paid in, uh, let's say, gets paid in January, right, with contract work will qualify for a payout at the end of February. So it's based month to month. And it's very fair that way. And what happens is, um, it's essentially 10% of, you know, the contract amounts that go through are redistributed evenly. And the reason why it's redistributed evenly is it's part of my profits, right? So I am the one deciding how to redistribute it. And frankly, I think it helps to smooth out, you know, the the feast or famine that people who do contracting often experience. And, you know, it's open to individuals, but it's also open to companies. Because, you know, when I was starting out, one of the hardest things was I had clients, but getting them to pay me on time was a huge problem. So I'm looking at this is a way for companies to help themselves bootstrap and help, you know, smooth out those cash flow dips and things like that as well. Um, but yeah, so far it's been working out. We paid out our first, you know, our first dividends to the initial participants and everybody made a minimum of 5% over what they would have made that month. So it's, you know, it's a success. Uh, how is the workforce platform itself doing? Is it busy? Is it active? Like, well, give me a sense of what's going on behind the scenes. So we're basically doing a private alpha and we're rolling it out in stages. So the folks that are getting paid currently by Luta Security were already opted in to the payout. And then what we're doing next is the folks that are in the alpha group who aren't getting paid by Luta, we're going to be doing feature surveys to figure out what our feature roadmap should prioritize. So for example, you know, do they want video chat with clients and being paid for, you know, paid for video consulting sessions, you know, and do that type of work virtual CISO or virtual, um, you know, cybersecurity advisory um, type of work? Or do they want more of, you know, the larger, broader contracts? I mean, if you think about it, it's different than the existing workforce platforms in that, you know, someone wants a logo designed, they can hop on, you know, 99designs and find someone to design a logo or want a website redesigned. And that's a very like contained activity. Well, we don't know if the buyers and sellers who are part of our alpha want to do more, you know, sort of end-to-end contract work like that or more piecemeal work. So that is kind of where we are right now. And what we're hoping for is to have a, you know, a public beta ready later this year. Fantastic. Can we pick, can I pick your brain a little bit on some advice for some folks trying to get into cybersecurity? You know, it's a big, it's a big topic and everyone got their own thoughts. Are you a big believer in, in people going and getting an education, go get a degree, certifications, or are you... Uh, you believe people can be self-taught, just get in on the ground floor at a sock and work. Is there like an ideal way? I don't know if there's an ideal way. And honestly, you know, I was just thinking about this right before this podcast. This year is going to be my 29th birthday working in tech. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. Raging I'm us both. Getting up there. but <laughs> You're raging um, us both because I remember when I met, when I first met you and you were at Symantec, I believe. Uh, so, yeah, oh that God. was close to 20 years ago. And so, and I had been working in tech, you know, in, in, 
you know, tech itself for uh, almost a decade. The siren goes off just at the perfect time, right? Because that's what that's a microcosm of what tech and cybersecurity has been (laughs) for 20 years. It's been a raging fire. But okay, so back to your question, is there an ideal way? Um, Well, I certainly didn't get a degree in any of this. Um, It was hands on, it was building the railroad tracks right in front of the train that is going full speed ahead. I would say that for for a lot of people, it you know, certifications can probably help some people get recognized because you know the algorithms will throw away your resume if you don't have certain certs, but I don't think that's the best way to actually be a practitioner. It might be the best, you know, one of the pathways to get a job, but to be a true practitioner, I think you do need hands-on experience. I do think that, you know, more organizations should be open to hiring people and training them. The problem is with so little headcount, that's that's where, you know, that's where the conundrum comes in, right? But I think, you know, if people are looking to break into cybersecurity and they're already in a tech adjacent, you know, tech position, like if they're doing software development, learn about secure software development. If they're doing IT, um, you know, learn about secure deployment and, and um, you know, volunteer to be the incident responder on call for your division and that kind of thing. But just get that experience so that you can be a true practitioner. I don't think there's any school that will teach you that except, you know, the school of hard knocks uh, responding to to incidents in your career. Should employers be less strict about demanding cybersecurity degrees? Absolutely, I think so. Yeah, because you one, you know, they're artificially restricting their candidate pool. And two, people do much better when they have context. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who does um, finance work and it doesn't pay quite as well, you know, in terms of uh, software development for, you know, the financial sector. It does not pay as well as cybersecurity. And I was telling him, look, start, you know, start getting more involved in the cyber side of things because you understand the context, you know, and that's really powerful in an industry. And you could be the expert at, you know, shoring up cybersecurity in this, you know, in this particular financial sector that you're in. It's fascinating to hear all of this. And I think we can, uh, I want to continue picking your brain on this, but I want to shift topics and, and, and touch on one other thing that I've not gotten a chance to talk to you about. And I think you're the perfect person for it with help us understand this. You're a member of the Department of Homeland Cyber uh, Security Cyber Safety Review Board, a CSRB that's been set up post uh, Log4j. They grew, you've done one, two, you've done two uh, reviews so far, the Log4j and Lapsus, and then there's a third one I understand, I, I imagine is currently happening, a review on cloud security after the Microsoft thing. Uh, the general consensus from industry, well, maybe not general consensus, but I've heard murmurings that the, the findings of this uh, CSRB is pretty basic, standard, straightforward thing we already know about. You're giving us recommendations on, ba- on basic things that these people should have been doing already. Secondly, because the board does not have any sort of regulatory powers, like well, why should we be paying attention to this? How do you help explain uh, the mission of the CSRB from your point of view and what you've been been able to accomplish so far? I think, so first of all, I do not speak for the CSRB or the U.S. Right. government. I have to say that disclaimer. I just speak from my own experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that one, maybe I'll take your questions sort of in reverse order. The I know it was a long of, convoluted question. I apologize. Right? <laughs> no, the lack of regulatory enforcement powers. Um, I think that's a good thing. Um, I think that's a good thing because it's a brand new board in a relatively new agency. CISA is new. It's it's only been around since 2018. 
and it only had a decent budget for the last couple of years. Before that, I think it had less of a budget than Microsoft in terms really? of. Yes, yeah, I'm almost certain that is the case. So until they got you know uh, bumped up with their budget, they were you know operating on a shoestring. So. Do you want to give regulatory powers to a brand new board and a brand new organization that that barely had budget until a couple of years ago? Absolutely not. You want these organizations to mature and, you know, really hone in on their mission. But the other bit is that none of the advisory boards that I'm on, I'm on three federal advisory boards, none of them have regulatory power. They are there to advise. And that or is enforcement what, authority, I think. I think right. that's the, the little bit of the, the, the hiccup is that, that without enforcement authority, like who cares? I mean, that's the, right. the general thing is like you have no stick. Right. Well, I mean, we basically advise others to use their sticks. So oh, I, I would. I, so if, if we call up, if we look at the uh, lapsus report, right, that was, you know, we have recommendations there for, um, you know, for industry, but we also have recommendations for enforcement agencies that already exist, like the FTC, the FCC. We recommend, you know, that they essentially try and help crack down on SIM swapping. And that is something that, you know, they are tightening up. Yeah, we've started to see some moves happening in the background around tightening up SIM swapping. And and you believe like some of the CSRB work helps to push that stuff forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then to the point about it being very basic, I agree with that. I also think that it's important, like coming from whom, right? The basic guidance is out there. We as security practitioners know it, but kind of organizing it around a story, organizing it around, you know, we looked at this incident and here are all these best practices that if they had been done, that we all know about, would have prevented or mitigated or made the response easier for this particular type of incident. So I think it's the synthesis of that into one report focused around a story. And it's also basically who it's coming from, right? This is the first board of its kind for the United United States government in cyber. And I think that um, that is the weight that it has. And what's nice is that it's actually a tool that we've heard back from industry partners saying, actually, I can now point to the CSRB report and now I have approval to do this thing that I've been trying to get done. So it's almost like where the United States, like uh, older sibling consultant that has basically said, yeah, well, you knew you needed to do this. Now you really have to do it you know, because we we pointed out that it would have it would have made things better or prevented this entirely. You think there's a natural evolution for this down the road where it has some sort of enforcement authority? You know, we don't know, right? We we haven't been uh, we were established by executive order and we have not yet been blessed by Congress, right? I, I don't think they've made a run at it. Congress has been doing a whole Easy lot of other a million other things. things. Right. A lot of other weird things instead. But I would assume that since we're modeled after the NTSB, which right now is looking at planes, plane doors falling out of the sky and into people's backyards. But, you know, since we're modeled after that agency and they do have, you know, some enforcement capabilities and whatnot in the future, I imagine we may, you know, go that direction. But that definitely cuts down on the amount of voluntary cooperation we might get from industry when we're asking the questions. So it's like a two, two-sided, two you know, uh, yeah, a double-edged sword. Do you have a personal thought and opinion on big tech vendors sitting on that board? Uh, Google has a representative. Microsoft, I believe, has a representative. Even this new one that you're currently working on, the Cloud Security Review, Heather from Google uh, withdrew from participating in this one. There's some talk, talk around, like, why should the big vendors be there when this is meant to hold them accountable for a lot of their own problems? Do you have a thought on that? 
Well, I think one, you need that perspective from the big vendors because they well, one, you know, they they control big swaths of the internet. So if you don't have that perspective and you just have smaller players, they're not going to understand the scope and scale of certain problems or their proposed solutions might not be scalable at all for some of the biggest players. So that's important, I think, to have that perspective. But to your point, you know, when it's directly about their business models and whatnot, um, you know, there's there's appropriate it is, though, right? They're all it's all intertwined at some point. Microsoft owns everything, right? I mean it is, yeah. But you know, there are recusals and everything. And um, I think using the recusal process is is a natural way to deal with too much conflict of interest. Sounds good. What can you tell me about like how the work is actually done? Are you guys on just a bunch of Zoom calls and, and, and webinars or do you like request emails to see how things are done? Can you what what can you say about what the background looks like and the CSRB work? I will tell you that of my three federal advisory boards, the CSRB is the busiest. It is the one with the most meetings. But and it's it real work, sense. right? That's what I wanted yeah. to get to. Like how much of it is like real, real, real work versus, you know, a bunch of companies submit some reports and then some people kind of analyze it and write another report, which is... No, there's a lot. There's basically there are a lot of interviews that we do with with whoever we've called upon to present to us some information. So they supply written information, but they will be interviewed by the board, and that is a lot of work. That's a lot of meetings, and um, you know, and then it gets synthesized into the report, and there's numerous revisions, etc. But yeah, it is very labor intensive for the participants on the board. I, I want to shift to a last topic, if you don't mind, if you can spare a few more minutes to talk a little bit about uh, when you guys did. The log for when the CSRB did the log4j review, you deliberately published a blog post on Luta security, kind of cautioning against following this pattern of governments requesting and, and demanding heads up on uh, d- disclosure and uh, discovery and disclosure of vulnerabilities. Uh, two questions here. Why did you do that? And do you have a thought on how this new European Cyber Resilience Act kind of dovetails with all of this? Well, basically, it boils down to governments wanting to know about vulnerabilities as soon as they're discovered or very shortly after they're discovered. And China's regulation has been in place for a few years, and they actually uh, punished Alibaba because the researchers who found Log4j did not tell them within two days, which is the Chinese requirement, about that vulnerability that affected you know software that ran in China. So what I was cautioning against um, and what I am seeing emerge you know, against my, my greatest fears, um, you, know, you mentioned the cyber resilience Resilience Act in Europe that just got passed, um, and we're expecting the finalized text any day now. It should be coming out this month. Um, really, it's breaking the norms of vulnerability disclosure. And as you know, I'm a co-author, co-editor of the ISO standards on vulnerable disclosure. But basically, it's nobody should know about this vulnerability except the person who discovered it and the person who has the, um, the responsibility to fix it. And if you can keep it secret during that process, great. You know, if it leaks out and is being exploited in the wild, then you go earlier than that. But generally speaking, it's safest to keep that to a need to know basis and inviting a government to know about unpatched vulnerabilities, any government, is breaking that in a very dangerous way. Obviously, a government could use an unpatched vulnerability for attack purposes. But quite frankly, if it leaks out, I just wouldn't want one other place 
where there's a concentration of unpatched vulnerability information, it's bad enough that an attacker could very well break into your organization and go for your bug database. That certainly happened multiple times to Microsoft and others. But having it now regulated that you now have to report these unpatched vulnerabilities to a government, that's that's super dangerous. And Did you it, get a sense that there were some yeah. rumblings in, in here that folks who wanted to follow that model? Well, put it this way. The fact that the CRA was passed and you have, so basically the CRA's text is, they're, they're trying to be very careful about it. They say, we don't want detailed information. We just want to know what software is being actively exploited with an unpatched vulnerability. So they have all these caveats to it that they think make it safer. Unfortunately, it doesn't make it that much safer because you have 24 hours between finding out that a, a vulnerability that's unpatched, you know, like essentially if you've got a new zero day, and you find out it's being actively exploited, you have 24 hours to tell the European uh, Union and have that distributed among all the member states. Um, did I, your question was, do I, do I think there's rumblings of that happening, that it's going to happen here in the United no, States? No, when you were cautioning back then, when you were cautioning oh, about yeah. doing this, were you hearing rumblings since back then that this is something that could likely be in play here? Well, I was seeing rumblings because essentially it's FOMO. You know, governments experience FOMO and they're like, wait a minute, China gets to know about this? Oh, I want to know about it too. And the FOMO train left the station once once China did that. And that is, I think, where, you know, the motivation is coming from with the CRA in Europe. And quite frankly, depending on how the final text plays out, I see this as, you know, as a as a runaway train. You know, we're going to see You're expecting the worst? I'm expecting every government will start enforcing it. If European government starts enforcing it the way that that it had previously been drafted, I think every government is going to start enforcing it. And guess what? It's going to be chaos. It's also going to be a lot of non-actionable activity, right? So it's like, you know, I get it that they want to know. They want to know if there's a vulnerability that's being exploited. They want to be able to protect um, you know, their critical infrastructure. However, are there enough responders in critical infrastructure right now to respond to the vulnerabilities for which there are known patches? No. So how are they going to deal with this flood of information of, by the way, you know, there's this technology that w is being exploited, but there's no real mitigation for it yet. It just started getting exploited 24 hours ago. So I just think that it's going to be, it's going to seed chaos and it's not going to make the internet safer. But I also think there's no way to stop these folks who got it in their head that they want to know. That's a terrible place to leave it. But unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> we are out of time. Katie Masuris, co-founder and CEO of Luther Security. All the very best to you. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the company. I'm rooting for you guys. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you for helping me celebrate my 29th birthday in tech. <laughs>